0: again, I, I want to, by way of setting the scene for this passage, you could imagine yourselves in the Palace of Westminster, where a special meeting has been convened. Um, Mr. Cameron's there, Mr. Miliband's there, Mr. Clegg's there, Mr. Farage is there, Mr. Salmon's there, uh, and into their mix comes sort of the fly ointment George Galloway, who they've sort of let into their gathering, and they're... They're a, they're a little bit annoyed that they've had to do so. But they, they let him in anyway, and they sit and they, um, they talk among themselves, and, and occasionally he butts in, and they find it highly annoying. <laughs> but they want to know what he's got to say, because he seems to have somehow captured the imagination of the people from his constituency. And they think, well, there must be something in his respect party. And then Jihadi John uh, comes into the Palace of Westminster, <laughs> Um, Somehow, you have to bear with me on how how he gets there. But he comes in and he gets down by George Galloway and says, I'm so sorry, George. I got caught up. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm terribly sorry. You've got to help me. Imagine the reactions from our, our esteemed political leaders seeing this man who's wanted on both sides of the Atlantic Uh, in that context, with this person that they look down on anyway. And then if uh, Galloway said, don't worry, son, it's going to be okay, I'll help you. Their revulsion with him. The parallels aren't obviously very exact between um, Galloway and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. But something of the shock of someone who is so outcast in our society coming into somewhere so respectable via someone who's not quite sure about in the middle is what's going on in this story. And the person who's the outcast isn't a jihadi, John, but a woman who's been living a sinful life. And in those days, a sinful life was, uh, the bar was set higher than our day. Who gets defined as a sinful life today by the general Daily Mail reading public? Only a few categories of people, a jihadist, a paedophile, an embezzler maybe. And she was someone whose sin had caught her up. And she found herself in a situation she would never have been able to go into, except for this intermediary, this bearded, maybe long-haired, 30-something-year-old man who was sitting in here in his seat of respectability with the Pharisees, and uh, having a meal with them. <laughs> if you were here last week, you, you'll remember that this man Jesus was winding up the seat of respectability. <laughs> he kept doing things on the Sabbath. He kept doing things that annoyed them. Uh, and he's obviously trying to teach them something, but yet when they invite him to dinner, he still says, yeah, okay, I'll come. He doesn't poo-poo them. He goes to their house. He reclines at the table with them. And um, then this woman comes in. And you've got to bear in mind that at this point, Jesus is sort of person, not quite grata. (laughs) They're not sure if they want him there or not. He's partly there because it's um, keep your enemies close sort of mentality. Let's find out about him. Let's tease out what's going on with him. Let's see if he really is a prophet, we see in verse 39. Let's, Let's test him. Let's find out if he really is a prophet because he's upsetting the status quo and we don't like it. And this woman comes in and she's... Just there, at his feet, just breaking this extraordinarily expensive jar of perfume that were told us where could have been a large chunk of a year's wages. and um, just pouring it on his feet, and then drying his feet with her hair in what even in our context would be a sensual activity. <laughs> And in those days, absolute taboo. Why does Jesus allow her to touch him? The Pharisees want to know. Doesn't he know what sort of person she is? Why would you associate with an outcast? And um, Jesus, almost telepathically, it seems, in verse 40, answers Simon's unspoken question. And he says, Simon, I've got something to tell you. And he doesn't tell her about the woman. He tells him a story. And it's a very powerful story. I wonder how it sounds to you. Two people owe money to a certain money lender. Uh, one owes 500 days wages over a year's salary. Working days, maybe two years' salary. And the other owes a tenth of that. Neither of them has the money to pay him back, so he cancels the debt of both. Now, which one loves him more, the one who owed 20-month salary or the one who owes 2 months' salary? He says, well, obviously it's the one who owed him 20-month salary. <laughs> How could you get out of jail free on that one? And Jesus says, well done, you've judged correctly. Isn't it nice? He just pauses to affirm this man who's criticizing him. He finds a reason to affirm Simon's line of reasoning. Uh, and then he applies it, having started the conversation, not just preaching at him, but started a conversation. He says, look at this lady, look at this woman. When you invited me here, you, you didn't even wash my feet, which would have been the custom for an honored guest. But she has, she, she did it with tears. And she did it with her hair. And then you didn't give me a, a greeting in a form of a kiss which would have been the customary greeting as you came in. You just, you know, sort of ushered me in past you. But she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Three ways that she's surpassed his host as a hostess. And he says, look, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. That the person who's been forgiven little loves little. And then he says, Your sins are forgiven and, and they get upset about that and then he tells her that her faith has saved her and go in peace. But the thing I wanted to rest with on us is that is this phrase, He who has been forgiven little loves little. I wonder how much Simon actually needed forgiving that day. I wonder how much he needed forgiving. And we get an idea of how much he thinks he needs forgiving, <laughs> because he's the one tenth person; he's the ten percent sense of a need of forgiveness, versus her hundred percent. I wonder how much he really did need forgiving. I wonder what his his heart was like on the inside. It, it strikes me this is really pivotal. Martin Luther, I was saying to uh, to someone yesterday, Martin Luther, the great reformer. Um, so go into the world and sin boldly. <laughs> go into the world and sin boldly. It doesn't sound the wisest advice to give from a pulpit. Maggie's grinning, going, oh, great. <laughs> Off we go. But it doesn't sound like the wisest advice, does it? Until you realize that, until you realize what you're actually like in the deepest, darkest, depraved bits of you, you can never realize how much you've actually been loved and how much you've actually been forgiven. See, many, many of us have a great level of respectability. Our presenting need isn't for forgiveness. I'm no worse than the next person, says the newspaper reader. I would never have done that thing as we look down our nose at someone. But she's not in that place. She can't look down anymore because she's on the floor. Her nose is on the floor. And she's wasting Her time and her money on the Lord Jesus. Because she knows that she's desperate for forgiveness. Now is it likely that she was worse than Simon the Pharisee? Well the answer to that is a no and a yes. (laughs) By the conventions of society she was obviously worse than Simon the Pharisee. They all could see it. They knew it. She was an outcast and she shouldn't have been allowed in. But in her heart, were her transgressions worse than his? Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. Certainly his pride seems to hold him back in a way that hers doesn't. But what she clocks is that she needs someone who can cover up all of that stuff she's got. And the the result in verse 48, 49 and 50 is that Jesus covers it all. Your sins are forgiven. What does, what does it mean? It means if you go to Jesus and say, I'm desperate, I need help, I can't get there on my own, I haven't got it in me, he's able to meet you and forgive you utterly. If you carry to him a small amount of sin, that's as far as he's able to meet you. If you have a revelation that you desperately need him, you can meet him in your entirety. If your revelation of your sin is very small, you can only meet him to that level. One of the marks of Christian maturity is not so much how good you are, but how much you realize you fall short of God on your own strength. It sort of stands to reason, doesn't it? If you think about temptation... If you're trying to tempt something, if you're a a demon or a devil and um, you know that you can trip Tim up all the time on picking an arbitrary thing, say vanity. If you knew you could pick Tim up arbitrarily on vanity, just like that, um, why go to the next level? (laughs) Because you can just knock him over straight away. But if over time he realizes that that might be a thing and he surrenders it to God and all all these different things like getting custard on his face at the holiday club or or something like that. (laughs) Gradually, the level of temptation has to be more acute, more specific, more honed. And gradually he realizes, actually there there were other bits of me that weren't right with God. And he needs a savior for those bits. Do you see how it works? And over time, as you get through different temptation levels, you face deeper and harder things. And yet the cross is big enough for all of it. Can you see that at work in your life as you've resisted temptation? As you've made progress from time to time and no doubt fallen at other times as we all do. And you come to God and say, help. There's mercy there, isn't there? You see, the problem is that the Simon's world was the world of religion. And the world of religion says, I'm going to try and get better and better until I just about make the grade for God. And the the gospel says no one made it that way. No one was ever good enough for God, Simon. Anglican. (laughs) No one was ever good enough for God. No one, no one, not one person. Apart from the Lord Jesus. Except that they could be good enough very easily if they have this faith that the lady has in this passage. And because she trusts that he can forgive her, He makes her good enough straight away. She's down here. And he says, you're up here. Simon's maybe in the middle, trying to get up. And Jesus exposes his heart and says, look, you're not getting there, Simon, are you? Which one's better off? Well, the one who sinned boldly, maybe, but realized her need of a savior. So that's the... Main gist of this passage, I guess, Jesus can forgive sins, and those who are forgiven a lot will love him a lot back. But there, there is another strand to this passage as well that might be relevant to us in our in our 21st century London life. It's just how wasteful this woman is. It doesn't seem like good stewardship. The Methodists have a ditty that you should um, earn all you can save all you can and give all you can. <laughs> well, this, this lady ruins that ditty. If she saved money for this jar, she just poured it down the drain. What a wasteful way to spend money. And yet Jesus celebrates what she's done. And I think that for, for us, there are moments in our life where we're called to waste ourselves on God. Waste ourselves on God. She wastes an alabaster jar of perfume. Bill Johnson's church in Bethel has um, what they call an alabaster prayer room. It's one of the inspirations behind our our soak service on Sunday night. And maybe your own devotions have a similar feel to them. When you go to a a convent or a monastery and you just waste time before the Lord. (laughs) You just pull yourself out before the Lord, and Bill Johnson tells a very funny story as as they started to build this prayer center, this alabaster prayer room. He said that a roadrunner um used to come along and every time they were praying, and, Do you know a road runner from that, that a cartoon you go beep, beep," and uh, they run past these these sort of like quite tall fast running birds, and every time they, they get this bird goes beep- beep and it', it was just like it's just like a clock thing, and, and again and again this thing came out and and, and after a while they said. I wonder if God's sending this bird along just to say, I'm here, beep, beep, I'm here. (laughs) and you go. This lady's got it. See, we we don't need long prayers to get to God's heart. We don't need to persuade him or cajole him or have a go at him and beat him into submission. But he he does rather like it when we wastefully spend time with him. (laughs) I don't know if, uh, if God had a love language. You know, have you seen the love language things? The idea that um, some people prefer to be given gifts to, some person, people prefer physical touch, some people prefer um, time spent with them or quality words. I don't know what love language God would have. I don't, I don't know what you think. It's, uh, it's, it's up for theological discussion. I don't think there's a set answer. But The one thing that it does suggest to me is that he does rather like that those sort of wasteful moments in our life where we go, this is just you, Lord. I don't know where you have those. I hate, I hate you do get them sometimes. I can remember one time where I, uh, I just sat on a sofa with uh, a pint in my hands and the football on the telly and just really felt the Lord saying, I'm here with you now, Richard. Let's, let's hang out together. <laughs> it doesn't have to be religious, you see. But it's just time spent, quality time, in company with someone you love. The heart of being a Jesus follower isn't about being more religious and trying to make the grade. It's about going, here I am, Lord. I'm nothing, I'm no one apart from you. But but I'm attentive, I'm here. And I'm just gonna waste myself on you in the only way I know how. And God checks your heart. And as he looks at your heart, he goes, yeah, all right. That would be lovely. Let's hang out together now. And it's a nice place to be. (laughs) So two things maybe to remember today, maybe different things for different people in the room. One is you can never really waste yourself on God. (laughs) Anytime you just hang out with him, give to him, lavish yourself on him, he appreciates it. And he loves it. And the second is... Just by trusting in him, you can be right with him in a way that the most religious, most law-keeping person can never be. Because he picks up the lowly and the outcast and he says, you're all right now because you trusted me. Two simple applications maybe from an amazing story of a lady whose story Jesus promises elsewhere will always be told when the gospel's preached. That's how important she is to Jesus.